0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the intersection of human sexuality, research, and education. Hello, and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell. I'm joined today by Emily Nagoski, Ph.D., wellness education director, lecturer, and campus favorite at Smith College, where she teaches women's sexuality. She's the author of three guides for Ian Kerner's GoodInBed.com, including the Guide to Female Orgasm, and she writes the popular sex blog, TheDirtyNormal.com. She's here today to talk about her book, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. Now, the, the subtitle of your book is The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And you do say in the book that you want to offer a, a new science-based way of thinking about women's well-being.
2: So that implies that we haven't been doing that then? God, no. Like, the science has really been working very hard, especially since uh, maybe the middle of the 20th century, um, to create an empirical understanding of how this sexuality thing works for human beings and for other species. But a lot of that work has not, almost none of that work has made it into the mainstream narrative about sexuality. Uh, when I ask my students, uh, I read definitions of normal sex from like sort of popular references. The two that I use are Van Velde's 1926 Ideal Marriage. He wrote this very popular guide uh, in 1926, and he has a definition of what normal sex is, So I read that to my students. And then I read from the 1976 height report definition of normal sexuality. And I ask my students, so which one of those definitions is a better match for what you grew up understanding about what normal sex is? And no contest, not once has anybody said, oh, the height report, the 70s definition is way closer to what I learned than that 1926, almost 100-year-old definition. Most of how we understand how sex works comes from the early 20th century.
1: Well, and you say that we're, we're kind of at a pivotal moment in sex research. So tell us more about that.
2: The research has totally changed. Right around the turn of the 21st century, um, a pair of researchers at the Kinsey Institute, Eric Johnson and John Bancroft, developed a model called the dual control model. All the previous research trying to sort of build a theoretical frame for understanding sexual response, arousal, desire, Orgasm, uh, was mostly descriptive. We looked at the behavior. We looked at what happened and just offered a description of what happened. And the dual control model is the first theoretical model that offers an understanding of how and why it happens, not just what happens.
1: Well, one of the underlying themes of your book, and you sort of alluded to it already, is the, the idea of normal. And, yeah. and your position is that we are all normal. So what does that mean, I guess, from a scientific perspective?
2: What it means from a scientific perspective, I think, is totally different from what it means for everybody else. From a scientific perspective, all normal means is, well, from a statistical point of view, it's the people who are piled up in the middle of a normal distribution. Uh, So it's the 95% of us who are all basically the same as far as the statistics are concerned. And from that point of view, sexually pretty much all of us are normal, but that doesn't actually cover what normal means in this case, because even the people who are outside the 95% are also normal. They're just different. When people ask me, Am I normal? And some version of that question is the single most common question that I'm asked. Like, I haven't experienced orgasm yet. Am I normal? Or I have pain when I have this going on. Is that normal? Uh, and by the way, the only thing that I would consider calling abnormal is unwanted pain. That's an indication that there's your body's asking for help, and you should ask a medical provider for it. Um, But when they're asking me, am I normal, they don't want to know, do I belong to the statistical central tendency? What people want to know is, am I healthy? And is what I'm experiencing a part of the common human experience? Do I belong here with the rest of the human beings? Is it okay? Am I all right? And the answer to that, with the exception of unwanted pain, is yeah, The reason this became such an issue for me is when, uh, I was teaching women's sexuality for the first time here, you know, I shoehorned in as much science as I could into a 100 level class. You know, it's a beginning class open to everybody. And at the end of the semester, after doing all that work to put in all that science, I asked them the last question on the final exam was, what's one important thing you learned? And I thought they were going to say, oh, the evolutionary biology or the social construction of gender or something like that. But more than half of my students out of 187 more than half of them just wrote, I learned that I'm normal. I learned I'm normal. I'm not broken just because I'm different from other people. I learned that people really vary from each other a lot. Um, and I was, you know, grading final exams with tears in my eyes, feeling like something really important had happened, not understanding why that experience of feeling normal was so important to them. And it was only in the process of writing the book, actually, that I came to conclude that the worry that you might not be normal is actually making your sex life worse. It's hitting the brakes on your sexual functioning and preventing you from being able to actually enjoy your sexuality. So the fear that you might not be normal can actually make you sick.
1: Well, let's talk about that. If, if the vast, vast majority of us are normal, why do we think we're not?
2: Oh, well, so sex is a social behavior for humans. It's social for a variety of species, but it is almost exclusively social for us. Um, almost none of the sex that we have is reproductive. Uh, there's actually really, really wonderful research from uh, the 1920s. It's 100,000 women, and it asked a lot of... Questions about the frequency that they had sex and the frequency with which they had babies. And it turns out there is zero statistically significant relationship between frequency of sex and number of offspring. So if we were just looking at the statistics, we would not think that there's a causal link necessarily between sex and reproduction. Clearly there is. Like sex causes babies. That's just definitely true. But Almost all of the sex we have is not reproductive, but is social in nature. So whether or not we're engaging in sex correctly is actually about whether or not we're feeling like we're welcome. Like eighth graders at the lunch table, right? Like, do I fit in? Am I wearing the right clothes? Is it okay that I'm here? Am I saying the things that are right? Um, And all other social, a whole lot of other social behaviors We can observe other people doing it and mimic them and be like, okay, I know for sure that I'm doing it right because I'm doing it the same as everybody else. Whereas with sex, we don't so much see other people doing it. So we rely on giving information and listening to our partner who's just as worried as we are. Is a lot of this feeling of
1: abnormality
2: cultural then? Well, it's entirely cultural. (laughs) Um, So, Apart from sex education in the classroom and in families, which in America is appallingly bad, people are also flooded with messages about sexuality from mass media. And every single one of those messages is both factually incorrect and actively destructive to sexual well-being, which is a big statement, but I'm going to go with it. Um, I really think it's true that everything people are learning is wrong, and yet they're totally convinced because they know a lot, because they have a lot of messages in their head. They feel like they really know a lot, but actually what they know is stuff that's um just not true. So, there's two chunks of messages. The first chunk of messages, I think, comes from really mainstream media, women's magazines, television, and a lot of these messages are about the way your body's supposed to look and the way your body's supposed to behave. In terms of sexual response. So there's one way that your body is supposed to look. Lately, it's been the cultural thin ideal. And if your body doesn't look like that, then you are fundamentally unlovable. There's a series for more than a decade now, they've been studying the influence of Western television on girls and women in Fiji. And there was a radical spike in disordered eating and body dissatisfaction within two years of the introduction of television in Fiji. And that spike sustained for more than a decade. It was not just a blip as they got used to being exposed to the Western thin ideal. For so the longer they were exposed to it, the more stable it got, um, up to about 30% of women uh, with – clinical levels of disordered eating. So actively destructive. And of course, that self-critical voice in your head is Not, you know, if you're in the middle of sexy times and things are feeling good, but what's happening in your head is you're worried about the fat on your abdomen or the, you know, cottage cheesy thing happening on the back of your thighs. Is that increasing, improving the sexy times? Ah, Not so much. It's hitting the brakes and shutting things down and reducing the quality of things. So that's one set of negative messages just about how your body looks and what it's doing is wrong and you're bad and unlovable and no one is ever going to want to have sex with you. And then the second batch of messages, I think, is coming from porn, which is so accessible now. Um, a lot of my students have been telling me that their primary source of knowledge about sex and the way they check and find out whether or not they're normal is by looking at the porn they can find on the Internet. And they have not bridged the gap between, like the sex that people have in porn is uh, about what looks most interesting on a screen. So when people like, you know, have their leg in the air and it's like the camera shooting, I call it the meat and potatoes shot. The reason they're in that position is so that the camera can get, a view, right, of the genitals, right? They're not distinguishing between the sex that looks interesting on camera and the sex that actually feels good while you're having it. So they're doing the thing that they've seen other people do because they assume that that means that they're doing it right. And they assume that the sensation that they're experiencing must be pleasure. That must be what sex feels like because we're doing the thing that you do. And they're not connecting the dots that, like, actually, this is not what feels really good for me. Let me try something else and see if that feels better.
1: So with this book, you've tried to, I guess, sort of unpack a lot of that cultural context, but also try to translate the science into something usable and practical.
2: Yes, but really the challenge was that Since I started my training as a sex educator 20 years ago, I've seen the gulf between the mainstream understanding of sex and the scientific understanding of sex just grow wider and wider. And the scientific books that have been coming out about sex have not been – really accessible to just people who wanted to have good sex lives. And the books for the mainstream audience that have been about, here's how to have a good sex life, have not really been very scientific, have not been in contact with all these developing new models of sexuality. So I took it on as my job to be the one who writes the book that's like, here's the science, here's how you can actually use this to have bigger, better orgasms and a happier sex life. Um, so that's what I tried to do.
1: You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm talking to Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. Okay, well, let's break this down for people. Uh, you mentioned the the dual control model, and it's something that you reference throughout the book. Uh, what is that?
2: The dual control model is maybe the most exciting new scientific development in sexual science in the last 100 years. Um, it is a description of the mechanism in your brain that controls when and how you respond to the world as a sexual place. It's called the dual control model. So that means there's how many parts? There's two parts. And if I tell you the first part is the sexual accelerator or gas pedal, that means the other part, must be the break. And it's the break that's the really revolutionary part of it. So the sexual gas pedal, the accelerator, notices all of the sexually relevant information in the environment. This is everything that you hear, see, smell, touch, taste, or imagine. And it sends a signal that says, turn on. And we're all probably familiar with that experience of something sexually relevant happening and things inside you waking up and going, oh, right, sex, good idea. But at the same time that that's happening, in Parallel, there's also the break, which notices all the reasons not to be turned on right now. This is everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain notices as a potential threat. So, you know, you're on the bus and in public. Or you're feeling not totally trusting of your partner, or you're feeling critical of your body, there's risk of STI transmission, there's risk of unwanted pregnancy, all those things are hitting the brake, and it doesn't matter how much you hit the gas pedal, if the brake's on the floor, you're still not going to go anywhere.
1: Well, and then some people have sensitive brakes and others have sensitive accelerators?
2: Right. So this is one of those places where the statistical normal applies. So most of us are heaped up in the middle, very much the same. And a small proportion of people have really sensitive or really insensitive gas pedals. And some people have very sensitive or very insensitive brakes. And you can imagine if a person's, you know, if you've got a car with a really sensitive accelerator, zoom, right? Um, you're really sensitive to all the sexually relevant information in the environment, and this can be great fun in the right context, and in a context especially where you're uh, experiencing high levels of stress, anxiety, depression, this is associated with increased sexual risk-taking and sexual compulsivity. So there's good things about it and not so good things about a sensitive accelerator, and people with a really sensitive break are the folks who are most likely to experience difficulties with sexual arousal, desire, and orgasm. And why
1: would that be? Why do some people have sensitive brakes and others have sensitive accelerators?
2: We have no idea. It looks like it's a temperamental trait um, that is more or less stable over our lifespan. But of course, we have no research on children, so we can't establish that. That's the framework that we're using. And it also appears that there's a relationship between brake sensitivity and things like psychosexual history, mental health and trauma history. Why
1: is this concept useful, uh, the dual control model, the brakes and accelerator?
2: If you happen to have a particularly sensitive or insensitive brake or gas pedal, that's useful to know. But since most of us are all sort of average and heaped up in the middle, the most useful thing is to know that there are these two separate functions. And if you're experiencing difficulty, you can ask yourself, so do I have adequate stimulation to the gas pedal? This is what we're used to hearing from advice columns as well. If you're struggling, you know, lingerie and sex toys and porn and hit the accelerator, basically, is what they're saying. And that's great. I am a fan of pleasure. And we also know that when people are experiencing difficulty, it's much more likely not that the accelerator doesn't have enough to respond to, but that the brake is responding to too many things. So can you can ask yourself, What is it that's going on in my context right now that's hitting my brakes? Am I feeling really stressed out? Eighty to ninety percent of people, when they're feeling stressed, depressed, or anxious, um, their interest in sex reduces? Do they have self critical thoughts about their body? Have they internalized negative cultural messages about the sexual things they might be interested in doing? Do they have other life issues that are interfering, especially relationship issues that are interfering? And when you can identify those things, you can do something about them. You get rid of the stuff that's hitting the brake and it Freeze up the accelerator to do its thing. So
1: you can change your sensitivities then? You can change your context?
2: The science isn't clear yet on whether or not you can change the sensitivity, but you can absolutely change what it responds to. You can teach your break not to respond so much to the sexual self-criticism, those thoughts that you have, and you can reduce the stressors in your life. You can improve the trust in your relationship. One of the classic examples recently, there was a, an MRI study published on... Um, Orgasm in, so this is people who are masturbating to orgasm in a lab in an fMRI machine. And uh, a whole lot of the participants orgasmed more easily when they put on socks. Why? So there's all this sort of like speculation oh, they're foot fetishists or it's a blood flow issue. No, the thing is, their feet were cold and that was a big distraction. <laughs> So they put on socks, their feet were not cold anymore, and they could orgasm more easily. So sometimes it really is as simple as that, or, you know, the grit on the sheets is squicking you out. So change the sheets. You're worried about people walking in? Lock the door. You don't have to change anything in your brain. This is not complicated, neuroscientific. You just change your context in order to make it easier for your body to relax and enjoy the sensations.
1: See that all sounds very simple. Um <laughs> one of I guess one of the the more complicated concepts but it makes sense in hindsight is uh is the idea that sexually relevant is different than sexually appealing. Can you walk us through that?
2: Yes. Okay. So let's do a little research. Um, So we're going to take a sit. By the way, virtually all of the research that's been done is done exclusively on cisgender men and women. So I'm going to be using these technical terms of men and women. And that refers only to the people who are participating in the research, which is mostly people who are born in a body that got identified as male or female. They were raised in a gender identity that matched that body And they now identify with that role that they got raised in. So cisgender people, there's a tiny bit of research on trans people. um, And I think that this problem is going to be fixed in the next 10 years. But in the meantime, let's just recognize that all I'm going to be talking about for the next little minute here is cisgender people. Sorry. Um, So let's take a cisgender guy. Uh, we'll bring him into the laboratory, give him a ridges scan, which is a strain gauge. It does exactly what you imagine it does. He goes into a very dimly lit, comfortable room. He sits in the really comfortable lazy boy chair and he puts the strain gauge on his genitals. Then he puts a little tray over his lap and on the tray there's a dial that goes from 0 to 10 and there's a remote control. And he sits in this comfortable, dimly lit room and watches all the porn, right? And on the dial, he rates how aroused he feels from zero, no, not at all, to 10, whoa, boy, howdy. Um, and we, when we get the data back, are going to look for the overlap between how aroused he feels as he reports on the dial and how much blood flow is moving to his genitals. And it turns out there's about a 50%, percent five zero percent overlap between what his genitals are doing and how aroused he feels, which is not 100%, but in social science, that is a really giant relationship. It's an a 0.85 correlation, if that's in a number you're interested in. It's a very strong relationship. So much so that the people who do the research have said, ah, it's just too strong. I'm not sure, like, that can't be right. Nobody else feels like it can't be right. When I talk about this research, people are all like, yep. Okay, so let's take a cis woman and do the same thing. We give her a vaginal photoplethysmograph, which is a little baby flashlight that she puts in the vagina. Same tray, same dial, same remote control, show her all the porn. And uh, we look for a relationship between how her genitals are responding and how turned on she feels. And it turns out there is a 10% overlap, a 1-0% overlap between what her genitals are doing and how aroused she feels. And the reason for this is that what her genitals respond to is things that are sexually relevant. Relevant. What his genitals respond to is things that are sexually relevant. What her mind responds to, her sense of like, yes, I like this. Yes, I want more of this. That is noticing what's sexually appealing. And if you got a male body, there's about a 50% overlap. you got a female body, there's about a 10% overlap between those things. We don't know exactly why. There is this difference, but it's quite a staple difference. They've done research uh, using a lot of different strategies for measuring female genital response. So there's the vaginal photoplethysmograph. There's a little clip that they put on the internal labia. They've done um, imaging research where they look at blood flow to the pelvis. They've done brain imaging research where they look at blood flow to the brain. And the difference in non-concordance varies a little bit depending on how you measure, but it stays really different. Um, So this appears to be a pretty stable finding.
1: Now, this is incredibly important information, uh, in my opinion, uh, especially for those of us that read about that study from years ago, Mm -hmm. basically said that, Women get aroused at images of bonobo sex?
2: Right, yeah. That's my favorite. I saw Meredith Chivers presenting this in 2003, and I, she was presenting for the first time the results of women's genitals' response, not just to human porn, but to watching bonobo chimpanzees have sex. And I highly recommend that people go to YouTube and search for bonobo gg rubbing and see the kinds of things they were looking at, because probably your genitals will respond. Not because you're like, oh, I would really like to have monkey sex. That's not what's happening here. Women's genitals are responding not as much as to human porn, but some. And their arousal level, what they're reporting is like, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not into the monkey sex. Please. Blah. And the way this usually gets interpreted, unfortunately is oh women are in denial we've repressed them out of awareness of what they they want and like or 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 they're lying they're ashamed to report that actually yes they really do want and like this thing that is going on I think we can all agree that women are not lying about not wanting to get off to monkey sex. So, this is the distinction, right? When your body responds, and the message over and over in the book is trust your body. Your body knows what it's doing, and it does. But genital response is not about what you like, it's about what's sexually relevant. And let's face it, bonobo Gigi rubbing is sexually relevant. Lesbian sex, if you're a heterosexual woman, still sexually relevant. Heterosexual sex, if you're a lesbian, still sexually relevant. Violent sex, unwanted sex, still sexually relevant. Can I tell you my Fifty Shades of Grey story? Do it. So I read Fifty Shades of Grey as research for the book. And at the end of the first spanking scene, there's more than one. Let me say that I am a romance reader. I like romance novels. They are a really great way to have a happy ending guaranteed and not use too many brain cells. I really enjoy romance novels. So I had an open mind when I started reading it. And what should happen at the end of the first spanking scene in a romance novel is the heroine should be going, oh, I know I'm not supposed to like this, but I like it so much. That's what's supposed to happen. That's not what happened in this scene. What happened is she didn't want it, but she agreed to it because he wanted it. And she didn't enjoy anything about it. It really, really hurt. She's squirming to get away and her face is squinched up she really doesn't enjoy anything about it and then Kristen gray hero slash spanker slash uh, stalker um puts his fingers in her vagina and says feel this anastasia see how much your body likes this um and i threw the book against the wall because what did he get wrong there well okay so yes your romantic partner touching your butt is definitely a sexually relevant stimulation, right? So her genitals responded to that, which has a 10% overlap between what she wants and likes. So he should not have said, see how much your body likes this, but see how sexually relevant your body finds this, which gives me no information about whether you wanted or liked it. Did you like it? No. Crap. Right? Like that's how that scene should have gone. But the worst, here's where it gets really dark and scary for me though. In the book, as so often in real life I've heard this story, she believes him more than she believes her own internal experience. She says, well, my genitals responded, therefore, I guess I must have liked it, even though she describes the experience as uh, debased, degraded, and abused. And we're going to call her a liar or in denial? No. What genital response tells us is what's sexually relevant, and it is sexually relevant for someone to touch your butt totally. And that has no necessary relationship with what you want or like.
1: Well, and let's be clear, there, non-concordance doesn't exist solely within the sexual realm. It, it You find non-concordance in other emotions as well, right?
2: In literally every other emotion. There's a lot of different ways that we experience emotion. There's your conscious experience of it. There's uh, the sort of secondary emotional expressions, like your facial expressions and your gestures and your tone of voice. All of these things communicate what emotional state you're in. And there's also the psychophysiological response, your blood flow and your heart rate and your uh, galvanic skin response, the amount of sweating that's happening, right? Like these are all emotion technically. And there is not necessarily a really strong relationship between these different ways of experiencing and expressing emotion. And that, so it's not sexual. This is just the way humans are. There's not necessarily an overlap in any of these. If you Google Scholar emotion Non-concordance—you find some sex research, but most of the research on non-concordance is not sex research. It's about all the other emotions: anger and affection, and trust and love. So,
1: did we just not know about sexually relevant versus sexually appealing? That entire concept, because it's—I don't think it's something that I've that I've really heard discussed.
2: Yeah, no, that's actually brand new. I. Looked at the arousal non-concordance research with the radical assumption that women are only as in denial about their sexuality or untrustworthy in reporting as men are. And when you interpret it from that point of view, if you assume that women are going to tell the truth and they, you know have bodies and are aware of that fact, the only reasonable conclusion is this idea of sexual relevance versus what you want or like. What really made it accessible to me as an idea was uh, the rat research that gets done, the affective neuroscience that shows us that in your emotional brain, wanting, liking, and learning what's relevant are three separate systems in the emotional brain. They're intertwined. They have relationships with each other. But you can like something without wanting more of it, and you can want something without liking it, and something can be relevant without necessarily being a thing that you want or like, right? Um So Pavlov's – I hate this example, but it's really – Useful. Um, Pavlov trained dogs to salivate when a bell rang. He would give them food and ring a bell and give them food and ring a bell and they would salivate with the food until eventually they would you could just ring the bell and the dog would salivate. Does that mean the dog wants to eat the bell?
1: This is Science for the People, and I am very much enjoying discussing the book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And I'm talking to author Emily Nagoski, and we will be right back after the break. Stay tuned.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to
1: Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my guest is Emily Nagoski, PhD, Wellness Education Director, Lecturer, and author of "Come As You Are: The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life." Uh, now, before the break, we were talking about nonconcordance—the uh, way that your that your bodily responses to stimuli don't necessarily match up with what you find sexually appealing. Uh, so, to to fr- uh, do okay. you mind if I talk about the patriarchy? Oh
2: god, please. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the patriarchy. Okay.
1: So how do you respond to to people who say, you know, if if it wasn't for the patriarchy and and all that cultural baggage, women would have the same level of non-concordance as men and and we would all be sexually freer, uh, happier for it.
2: So that's an empirical question as far as I'm concerned. They could be right. Let's test it. Let's raise a thousand girls in a culture where they are taught that their bodies are a gift, that they're given just for being born. They're not shamed for their bodies. They're taught that all their desires and their pleasure is normal, that their bodies belong to them. And they have just as much right to live inside their bodies as anybody else does, to trust their bodies and to recognize what it is they want and like. Let's do that and see how arousal concordant they are, what kind of desire they experience, and compare that to women who are raised in just regular culture. But for now, we have this culture that is profoundly sex negative and body shaming and policing. And I feel that change will happen very slowly. And I personally am not willing to wait until patriarchy is dismantled before I experience confidence, joy, and pleasure in my sexuality. And it turns out the science is offering some really useful answers for how to make that happen, how we can create a bubble of sex positivity, of confidence and joy in our sex lives without having to overthrow patriarchy.
1: So we, we, I know we spent a, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the dual control model and non-concordance because, uh, to me, they are tremendously valuable concepts. Uh, but I also want to talk about orgasms more because orgasms on it. On it. Yeah. So yeah. what do we know about orgasms from a scientific point of view?
2: So this is a complicated one in terms of what the science knows because I couldn't use the scientific consensus definition of orgasm in the book which was terrifying for me because I trust the scientific consensus in general. But the scientific consensus definition was something like a peak of sexual pleasure accompanied by rhythmic contractions of the pupal muscle. And unfortunately, we know from the research that orgasms are not always pleasurable. And we also know from the research that they are not always accompanied by rhythmic contractions of the PC muscle. We also know that people experience peaks of pleasure that are not necessarily orgasm. And we know they experience rhythmic contractions of the PC muscle that are not necessarily associated with orgasm. So sort of nothing about the definition is universally accurate um, and i needed a definition that explained what every orgasm is so the definite i went back to kinsey then from the 40s and to masters and johnson from the 50s and 60s and used the definition that orgasm is the spontaneous involuntary release of sexual tension which means that it can feel spectacular in the right context and it can feel not so great it can feel like death in the wrong context. And just sort of like nothing. If you wake up in the middle of an orgasm that's happening in a dream, it's just like, oh, that's interesting. That's surprising. You can have an orgasm during exercise. You can have an orgasm from almost any kind of sexual stimulation. The most common for people with female genitals is clitoral stimulation. Um, And you cannot have orgasm from almost any kind of sexual stimulation.
1: And do we know why some women have them and some women don't?
2: No, we don't know. Um, we don't even know how many women don't or what it means not to have orgasms. So I'm in favor of the fantastic bonus account of women's orgasms, which from an evolutionary perspective says that the reason women have orgasms is the same reason men have nipples which is biological homology. Orgasm with its very close link with ejaculation in males is absolutely essential goes the story, to uh, reproduction, because the only way that a male gets his DNA into the next generation is by ejaculating into a vagina while a woman is ovulating, right? So it's really important. So the hardware and software for orgasm is built into us right from the moment of conception, right? It's very well established. And because it's so important, females have all the same parts, just organized in a different way. Uh, and so it's built into us too, sort of just by accident, My students hate this story because it feels um, Adam's ribby. It feels like it's saying that women's orgasms aren't important because they're not evolutionarily necessary, which I can't deny that that is absolutely how a lot of the scientists who originally developed this idea felt. And it must be like if we think about that, like to say that orgasm is not reproductively essential, is that the same thing as saying they're not? important? I'm very proud that my editor let me say this in the book. Only some kind of woman hating asshat would say that orgasm is not important just because it doesn't make babies. Orgasms are important when they're important to the person who wants to have them, right? right. That's the only thing that we need. And so women vary from each other tremendously because their orgasms are a trait that has not been under selective pressure. So they've just sort of run free. And so they vary a whole lot from each other, which means that the way you experience orgasm is different from how I experience orgasm, which is different from how everybody else experiences orgasm. We are just all really different from each other.
1: Well, now, one of the things that you cover in your book that I thought was fascinating is uh, is the idea of, you know, are we ever going to develop a Lady Viagra so that women can have these wonderful orgasms uh, more frequently or at all?
2: Right. So that's an example of a lot of the problems with the research, actually. Almost all of the drugs under development have nothing to do with orgasm. They are just about increasing desire. There is a drug that's currently under development, a, a hormone, I think, that you sort of snort up your nose. That's supposed to make orgasm easier. Um, so think about what it would be like if there were a drug that made desire easier, arousal more pleasurable, or orgasm quicker. I would totally want to take a drug that it did any of those things. It would be fun. And it would make the company a whole lot of money. And fair enough for bringing people pleasure. Alrighty, But... You can only develop a drug and have it be approved by the FDA in the United States when you establish that there is a medical necessity for treating it. So how slow does orgasm have to be before it's so slow that you're actually sick, that you have a disease because your orgasms take so long? How frequently do you have to want sex before you want sex enough not to have a disease, not to be broken? How much pleasure do you have to experience during sex before you're experiencing enough pleasure to be sexually normal? I don't have answers to those questions, but I think they're the sorts of things we should be asking ourselves when we think about developing a drug. Um, low desire is the most usual target of intervention for these medications. Uh, most recently, this has been flibanserin, which has been uh, submitted for the third time to the FDA. And It increases sexual desire. So the result is it increases the rate at which women have sexually satisfying sexual events by one per month over placebo. So that's, you know, statistically significant. One more sexually satisfying event per month, statistically significant. For a drug you have to take every single day indefinitely and which 13% of people who take it experience dizziness, somnolence, and nausea. So does that drug get approved? Is that enough of an improvement to justify giving women a drug with potential side effects and health risks? So my favorite study uh, was testing the idea that a drug could – reduce the, the sensitivity of the breaks, right? And if there's going to be a medication for women's sexual desire, I think that must be how it's going to work because a too sensitive break is the best predictor of people experiencing sexual difficulties apart from things like trauma and stress and depression. So uh, one really, really brilliant study looked at uh, how a drug designed to turn off the brake affected women. And for half of women, it didn't do anything. But for the half of women for whom it did something, uh, here's what you do. Four hours before your sexual event, you drop some testosterone under your tongue. And then two and a half hours later, you take a pill. And then an hour and a half after that, you have your sexual event. And the women rated their level of satisfaction with that sexual event, both before and after using the drug. And before using the drug, their their satisfaction rate was 50%. They were 50% satisfied with their sexual event. After using the drug, they rated their sexual satisfaction as 60%. So would you go through this process, this four-hour thing of the the hormones under your tongue and the pill, in order to take your sexual satisfaction from a solid F to a solid D minus? And is there anything else you could do that would improve your sexual satisfaction that much? Like if you felt really profoundly satisfied with your body and beautiful, if you felt like you had 100% permission to take as long as your body wanted to get fully aroused and your partner would love every second of that process, if you have a trauma history and you feel like you can fully heal from that experience and be present in the moment and enjoy pleasure, if you were totally sure that no one was going to walk into the room and you were allowed to be as raucous as you wanted to be and no one was going to judge you, Would any of those things increase your sexual satisfaction by 10 percentage points?
1: I know I don't have you for very much longer, but I I, actually, I want to talk about something that wasn't in the book, and I have a feeling that it was because it happened after the publication date. But uh, there was some recent research on female ejaculation. Can you talk about
2: that? Yes. So you're talking about the study where uh, the way it got reported in the media is that female ejaculation is urine? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read the study? No, I did not. Yeah, I think a lot of the journalists didn't either. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, I feel better.
2: And it's actually a little troubling to me the way it got written by the researchers as well. Okay, so what female ejaculation is is this phenomenon where at orgasms or sometimes without orgasm, a person with a female body ejaculates. And one of the most fascinating things that's been happening with the research on female ejaculation in the last couple of years is this idea that there might actually be two separate phenomena happening where there's a small amount of fluid coming from uh, the gland right at the mouth of the urethra. It's called the Skene's gland or the, the urethral sponge. Uh, so there's a small amount of fluid coming from there. The organ that's the homologue of the prostate and then the rest of the fluid is coming from the bladder so this really interesting study that just got published showed uh, they did a sonogram of the bladder so they showed that it was an empty bladder before the arousal process they sh- uh, did another measurement right before orgasm so she's in the laboratory these are all women who have a history of ejaculating um, their partner comes in and stimulates them to orgasm um, and right before when she gets to a really high level of arousal they stop and And they measure the bladder again. And it turns out her bladder has filled some. And then uh, she has an orgasm and she ejaculates in the lab. They measure the amount of fluid she ejaculated and they do a sonogram of her bladder again. And her bladder is empty. So, look, it came from the bladder. That's really interesting. They did a chemical analysis of the woman's urine and this fluid that she ejaculated. and. There's only, I think, six women in the study. Um, And when you look at the chemical profiles of the fluid, they're just totally not the same. But the way they reported it was with the one in the middle, right? So there's three measures of central tendency, mean, median, and mode. Mean is the statistical sort of like the you calculate the average. Uh, Mode is the one that shows up most frequently. And median is just the one in the middle, right? So they just like... With each of the chemicals that they measured, they reported the one, the woman who had it in the middle. It's actually really difficult to do uh, ejaculation research. First, hardly any of it happens in the United States because you can't get funding to do ejaculation research in the United States. I can't imagine why. And you have to find women who are able to orgasm with ejaculation in a laboratory, which is not easy. So um, these studies are very small. It's six women. And when you actually look at the profiles, instead of just like looking at the means, the the central tendency they reported, which is the median, these are not the same. The urine and the uh, ejaculation are not the same. They're totally different. All the women I know who ejaculate are like, you can tell by the smell it's not the same thing. It is a different fluid. Yes, it does seem to be coming from the bladder. But here's what's most interesting about this to me. There's a lot of other, well, not a lot, but there's some other sonogram research on the arousal process in female bodies, and most of those report that the bladder does not fill, or they don't report that the bladder does fill. So, for me, what's interesting is, if you're deliberately recruiting for women who do ejaculate, it looks like you might be recruiting for women whose bladders do somehow fill during sexual arousal, which is different from women who don't experience ejaculation. Why is that happening? For me, that's the really interesting question here.
1: Emily, honestly, wonderful, wonderful book. We we didn't even get a chance to talk about the, the worksheets at the end of every chapter. This is, again, folks, this is a very practical book. I cannot recommend this book enough. Emily, thank you so much for being here.
2: It has been my pleasure.
1: And that was Emily Nagoski, author of Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life. And you can find links to both Emily and her book on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, Plus, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
3: Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Alice Dreger a professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also the author of Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex and Galileo's Middle Finger, Heretics, Activists, and the Search for Justice in Science. Alice, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Hey, Rochelle. Thanks so much for having
3: me. So you decided to attend one of your son's sex ed classes and ended up live tweeting it. Uh, But before we get into what you found when you got there,
0: why attend in the first place? Well, he actually invited me. So uh, my kid has grown up with his mother being a sex researcher and also sort of a data hound and somebody who's written about his sex education and how uh, lame it's been. So when they started in this year, and he's in ninth grade in public school in East Lansing, Michigan... Uh, and they started teaching abstinence before marriage, he knew from me already that that kind of teaching doesn't reduce teen pregnancy rates and doesn't reduce sexually transmitted disease rates. And so he was skeptical of that, but also just wanted me to come and see what was going on because he found it really sex negative. So I ended up uh, attending his class at his request. Okay, so tell us about the class you attended. Well, I went and sat quietly in the back, although I live-tweeted it, as you know. And basically, we found out later that the the two people who had been brought in to guests teach were from a Christian pro-life group, which wasn't obvious that day, but became obvious later. And basically, what they were teaching the kids was that if you don't abstain before marriage, then your life will be hell. You'll get pregnant. You'll get diseases. You'll live in shame. You'll drop out of school. Everything will be terrible. And then one of the things they did actually was have the kids play this supposed game where they rolled the dice. Everybody had a number assigned, one through six. And if your number came up, then you had sex with a condom, the condom broke, and you got pregnant. So within a few rolls of the dice, everybody in the room was pregnant. The lesson being condoms are hopeless and pointless, which is not what I want my kid being taught. Uh, and they fail all the time. So basically, the whole message was sex is terrible, sex is dangerous, sex is awful. And, you know, if you go anywhere near it, your life will end
3: what do we mean when we say sex education, a sex education program is effective? What are the
0: actual goals? Well, that's a really good question, right? Because people have different goals. And supposedly our goals is to reduce unwanted pregnancy rates and to reduce disease transmission. But I think that that's not really the goal of groups like the one that came in. I think the goal there really is a religious value goal, which is to convey the idea that sex within marriage Heterosexual marriage is the only morally appropriate sex. But you can't say that right in a secular democracy. So what ends up happening is places like Michigan pass laws saying that you have to teach abstinence. You can also teach, you know, condom usage and birth control and things like that. But you have to teach abstinence before marriage is part of the curriculum. And supposedly it's aimed at reducing disease and unwanted pregnancy rates. But in fact, I think it has a very heavy, frankly, Christian moral valence to it, which is aimed at teaching sexual shame.
3: Okay, so based on those stated goals that we have, is abstinence education effective?
0: No, the data that we have suggests it's either neutral or it backfires. So it either doesn't work or it actually causes more problems. Now, for me, I care about more than just can we reduce unwanted pregnancy and disease rates? I want to do that. But I also want to teach kids that sex can be good and sex requires responsibility and sex requires consent. And so that stuff doesn't seem to even get in there. And when you're teaching abstinence and you're teaching that sex is shameful, then there is no space for talking about consent and responsibility and pleasure because those things aren't even supposed to come into play. You're just not supposed to do it. So if
3: abstinence education isn't effective, uh, are there programs that do have evidence behind their effectiveness?
0: There's unfortunately not a lot um, in terms of what actually works for these things. So we have not yet figured out what it is that works with regard to teaching kids in order to do this stuff. So I think in many ways, we're still flying by the seat of our pants in terms of education. What does seem to work is teaching kids the practicalities of things. So teaching them how you use birth control, where you get birth control. But some of what we're talking about is accessing Issues. It's not just educational issues. So, you know, after this whole thing came out, I ended up talking to a whole bunch of different teens locally in the area. And a lot of them, for example, didn't know that you could go to the local drugstore and buy condoms over the counter without anybody seeing you because you can, you can pick them up and you can go to the self-checkout cashier and run them through. You don't even have to go to a human anymore, and you can buy condoms at any age. And they didn't know that. They thought that you had to like have ID or something like that. They didn't know that you could buy spermicides over the counter. Um, they, they just didn't know what was available at the drugstore. They're too embarrassed to go and look, and so they haven't looked. So part of what we're talking about is not just um, failure of sort of basic education, but failure to educate kids at all in terms of what the access is available to them in terms of their rights as sexual human beings.
3: When we're talking about the sexual education programs that do exist, uh, leaving aside perhaps the sexual education programs of our, of our dreams, what do the more comprehensive classes have that the abstinence ones
0: don't? Well, they do have discussions about consent, but then they also have issues like talking about LGBT life and talking about uh, the way that being gay and lesbian is not a pathology. Um, Some of them even broach topics of masturbation and talk about the fact that masturbation is not harmful if done in sensible fashions and it doesn't get too elaborate. I don't think we need to get into that in the classroom. But basically letting kids know that masturbation is a normal sexual activity and, by the way, will not lead to pregnancy or disease transmission. So these kinds of things. And then also teaching the basic biology. So part of the problem is the, the way that we teach the biology is sort of so unrealistic in terms of we, we never, I've been hearing from other nations because of what I tweeted went international. And in other nations, for example, kids are actually in, at fairly early ages shown pictures of naked adults so that they can talk about what naked adults look like. And they look at genital pictures and they see this is what a penis looks like when you're an adult. This is what, there's hair that grows there. The penis gets bigger when you're an adult. In terms of the vulva, you know, this is where the clitoris is. Vulvas look different from each other. And this is the sort of stuff that's completely lacking in the United States so that kids really have the assumption that everybody looks like this neat drawing. Females are only ever shown in the cutaway view. We're like some kind of architectural drawing in sex classes. We're never <laughs> seen, right, the way we really look in real life. We're always shown in a, in a sliced picture. So we've got a problem, and we need we need better sex ed.
3: So how do we actually study the effectiveness of sex education? Um, it seems like a very difficult thing to monitor.
0: It is difficult, uh, but the way you would do it is the way you do any educational research, which is you can do pre-tests and post-tests to see whether or not knowledge is taken up. But you can also do prospective studies where you have kids who are being taught in different ways and see what they end up with. Um, that's one of the ways we know, for example, that signing abstinence cards actually tends to backfire in terms of the overall rate of when people have sex. That people who sign pledge cards, these are virginity pledge cards, and I found out that the folks who came to my son's school were actually handing these out, although they didn't get a chance to because I blew the whistle on them before that happened. But in most years, they're handing out these virginity pledge cards. If kids sign virginity pledge cards, they're actually uh, no less likely to have sex before marriage, and actually more likely to do it without protection. So that suggests to us that those actually backfire. So you can you can measure things in these different ways, but it, it can be tricky because. You know, teenagers are certainly not lab rats in a cage. They're complex human beings, so it can be difficult that way. But, you know, I think part of it isn't just the question scientifically, although I appreciate your question. Part of the thing is, I think, an issue of respect. And so what I would love to see in this educational research is whether or not kids feel like we're being honest with them. Do they trust us more before or after? Because one of the things my son said to me is the only thing I'm learning in this class is not to trust adults.
3: You're listening to Science for the People. With me is Alice Dreger, and we're talking about her experience attending her son's sex ed class and which types of sexual education have the most evidence behind them. Now, your son, and I love this, did a bunch of research the night before you guys went in together on the effectiveness of abstinence education and then printed out what he found and took it to class with him. What were his goals in doing this?
0: He's been raised to look stuff up and to also sort of argue over evidence what he wanted to do was to bring in the data that showed that if their goals really were teaching uh, in a way that would reduce pregnancy and disease transmission, then it wasn't effective. So he brought in the data and they rebuffed him. They said, well, you can look up anything on the internet. <laughs> As if everything you look up on the internet is equally true. So that's why when he came home, he decided to do more. And he, uh, it was really cool, actually, he found this he, he went on to uh, the medical literature site PubMed, um, which is uh, the main U- U.S. government's site for medical literature that's a very useful site. <clears throat> and then he found this British medical journal, Meta-Analysis and Systematic Review, and he printed it out and he brought it to his dad, who is a um medical doctor and also an educational researcher and said, can we go over this together and talk about how you read these things? And so my husband taught him how to read a meta-analysis and explained to him what the charts meant and how to present the data. But it was interesting because then my husband said to him, well, you have to understand that the adults in the room are not going to care about your data because they're wedded to a particular ideology and they're not going to be interested in what you have to say. And you're interested in bringing the science, but they're interested in teaching something else. And our son's reaction was, that's okay, I'm doing this for my classmates, which I thought was pretty cool. It was like, our generation is hopeless, but we'll see if we can't fix the next generation.
3: That's really fascinating. How did the students react when he brought in all this information that seemed to contradict what the teachers were saying
0: well on the first day when he brought it there were sort of uh A a murmur and a a few whoops in the class of like, whoa, look at the kid going (laughs) going after the teachers with actual data. So the reaction was quite positive, but also there was a little bit of a sense of scandal in the room. But he persisted and they just kept brushing him aside, telling him that his data didn't mean anything to them, that they were going to proceed as they wanted. Now, when he got home from school, he had a smile on his face and I asked him what was up and he said, well, it made it all the way back to the locker complex before I even got there. And I said, what made it back? And he said, the fact that I I tried to bring in data and they wouldn't look at data and so he said there was this big buzz now when he brought his new stuff in the next day the meta-analysis he didn't actually have to present it because it what i had live tweeted went so crazy <laughs> in terms of international stuff what ended up happening was they sort of um change the teaching entirely those people didn't come back that day and so my son texted me after school he said i didn't need to bring up the data and they actually said today that sex is pleasurable his regular health teacher took over and apparently had googled what i'd been writing about um previously and he came in and he said one of the things i want to tell you all is sex is pleasurable and that's why we do it and so i thought that was huge um and he was he was happy to have the data but also happy he didn't feel like he had to use it that suddenly sense was coming back into the classroom.
3: So. And this is more of an opinion question. Um, How much of our inability to deliver good, respectful, evidence-based sex education stems from how taboo sex still is in our culture, especially when we're talking about teenagers and sex?
0: I think a lot of it actually comes from the taboo nature. But I, I think part of what goes on, too, is that when we talk about sex, even if we feel like we're talking about sex in this very dry and cold way, there's part of our brain that's sexual, that's being engaged. And that causes us some degree of discomfort when what we're doing is talking with children. And I think that's a healthy response. But it's one of those places where we have to say to ourselves, okay, we're talking about sex, and at some level that's having a sexual conversation, and it feels wrong to do that, but for the sake of this person, I need to get through this. But the fact that it is taboo does not mean we we can't have the conversations, and it, it, we really have to. Um, and, and after you've had enough of them, then I think your child does become accustomed to talking to you about sex, more accustomed, and it gets easier as time goes on. But it's never easy. I never find it easy to have conversations about sex with my son. And I'm a sex researcher, and he and I have been having conversations now for at least 10 years.
3: So for any parents listening to the show, how important do you think it is for them to speak up about this issue?
0: I think one of the things that has happened is that conservative parents have tended to go into the schools and monitor what's going on in terms of sex ed. And they've tended to go to the school board discussions or the review panels where the sex ed is being reviewed. They've tended to go to the legislatures. And as a consequence, our sex ed has been tipped heavily in the direction of conservatism. Progressive parents like myself tend to pride ourselves on not irritating the public schools, not going in and bothering them. You know, we respect the schools, we respect the teachers, and so we stay out of it. And the problem with that is we have not been paying attention. So I've been encouraging progressive parents and especially scientifically minded parents to go into the sex ed classrooms and find out what's really being taught. Don't just look at the curriculum that's written down, because if you look at the curriculum that's written down, it looks pretty innocuous in many cases. What's really happening in the classroom is what we need to know. And then trying to pull it towards um, teaching the truth, teaching scientifically in terms of, you know, not providing claims like one out of six times you have sex with a condom, it's going to break and you get pregnant. That's a ridiculous statistic. So really trying to get in there and trying to make sure that what kids are being taught is is good and honest. But, you know, the question of teaching kids how to think about sex, that's always going to be a value conversation. That can't be answered for us by science. And so that's going to be a political conversation that has to happen, and I'm not sure which way that's going to go. Um, you know, I'm not sure why my value of, of understanding that sex is not shameful, that it's pleasurable, that when done right, it's a very great thing in your life, and it can absolutely be done outside of heterosexuality and outside of marriage, certainly. I don't know that that's ever going to really reach into the schools, but I'm hoping I'm hoping in the age of the Internet that there are ways for kids to get sex positive messages and to feel good about their bodies and to feel good about their sexuality. Alice, thanks
3: for being here and tell your son he's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks, Rochelle, and I will tell him. If you want to learn more about Alice Drager, her books, or her experience in high school sex education classes, you can start on Alice's website at alicedrager.com, and we'll have that link and a few others available on the show notes for this episode at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. On our website, you can also find and listen to all of our past episodes. We've also got our links there to our Twitter feed and our Facebook page, where you can keep up with the latest from the Science for the People team. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and and pretty much any more podcasts are delivered. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People.